the Bible reading this morning is uh, from the book of Romans in the New Testament, um, from chapter 8, verses 18 to 30. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Thanks, Caitlin. <coughs> my name's Peter, and uh, my voice is almost uh, gone to the uh, dogs, but that's okay because, you know, it makes me sound more like a croaky Joe Cocker minister. I don't know. Um, yeah, welcome if you're new here this morning. Um, we are doing a series in our church on the Book of Romans, and we started it last year, and we, we went on a bit of a pause. We got up to Chapter 8, and uh, we, we're entering back in at Chapter 8 today. Um, and so... Uh, if it's a bit weird sort of hearing a, a, a long letter talked about um, without knowing the context, so I thought I'd give you a bit of context um, uh, so that you know where we, what we're talking about. Uh, the, the book uh, of Romans is written by uh, a man called Saul of Tarsus, who was basically a, um, you probably want to call him a Jewish terrorist. Uh, the, the, the New Testament says that he actually hated Christians when he was... Um, active in his uh, work as a, as a Jewish terrorist, and he literally dragged men and women and children out of their homes uh, so that they could be arrested and um, put on trial, even tortured and killed. And, uh, but then he had this dramatic conversion on the, on the road to Damascus one day. Uh, the resurrected Jesus appears before him, and his life is changed forever. And God gives him this special mission to be uh, a kind of a missionary, preacher, uh, to the non-Jewish world. 
the Gentile world. And so at that point, he, he uses the Roman form of his name and changes his name to Paul from Saul, and that's how we know him mostly. And um, what he did to achieve this, fulfill this mission was to start churches. And one of these churches was the church in Rome. And um, what had happened with this, this church was it was a church that uh, had both converts from Judaism and, and Gentile converts to Christianity, and they were in the same church together. And then at one point, the Emperor Claudius goes... We're going to expel all the Jews from Rome. And so that included the Jewish Christians, and they had to leave. Then five years later, they came back um, because they were allowed to. The emperor allowed them back in. And these Jewish Christians come back to their church and discover that the Gentile Christians had made it all Gentile. And they'd, um, you know, they'd done away with a lot of the Jewish um, traditions that were important to the Jewish Christians, like um, some of the festivals and circumcision and the the flavour of the coffee at the end of the service and all those things that were important. They did away with those things and so there was disunity. And so Paul was writing to, the, to one of these churches, this church in Rome, that he was, uh, thought was an important church, to try and bring unity. And he also wanted them to um, be a strong church because he wanted to use this as a basis from which to do his mission into Spain and to go on and start churches in Spain. And so what do you... What do you thought he'd do is write this, the most complete form of his explanation of the good news of Jesus Christ, the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and why it's important. And, and this is basically what he says in these eight chapters, and I'll do this in like a minute, okay? Um, he basically says all of humanity is in trouble because of their sin and slavery to sin, There's their, their selfishness, and they need rescuing from this. They need rescuing from this. And they're not going to get rescued by obeying the Jewish law, if you think that that's the case. Um, because as we know from reading the scriptures, the Old Testament, the Israelites were not able to live in a holy and righteous way that pleased God. They were not able to keep the law. And so they need rescuing. Um, and in the chapter 3 of Romans, is this profound chapter where... Paul says, God shows his righteousness by finding a way to save humanity. And he does this by sending Jesus. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who becomes a representative of all of humanity and all of, and, and all of the... Um, he takes on all the sin and the problems that humanity have caused and becomes his sacrifice on the cross. And um, he deals with all the sin and death and rises again, deals with it by rising again and then offering this resurrection life to anyone who wants to have it. Um, and, and Paul says um, in chapter 4, basically what God's doing is he's trying to create this new faith-based multi-ethnic community where they all have, like Abraham as their descendant, but, uh, but, but Jesus as their Lord, are Jews and Gentiles together, one new humanity, multi-ethnic faith-based humanity. And he says... Look, there's basically two ways you can live your life. There's the Adam way, which you don't want to do because Adam is, um, he, he, he was a selfish sinner and his way led to death. Or you can live the second Adam way, which is the Jesus way. Uh, and Jesus actually was obedient to his Father in heaven and he offers that to you. And Paul says to the church in Rome, um, you, you are Christians, so live the second Adam way. Live the Jesus way. Embrace that. There's no point going back to the old way, because why? Because God has sent Jesus to die for you. But not only that, he sent 
his Holy Spirit um, to, to deal with the, the, the fundamental problem that you have, which is that your, your heart needs changing. And the Holy Spirit is doing that now in you. You are free from your sin. And the Holy Spirit is living in you. And you have direct access to God. And your life is transformed forever. So that brings us to the passage that we just had read out by Caitlin. And what we have is now the answer to the question that is natural to ask. And it's the question that's sitting at the background of this passage and the whole of the letter, actually, to the Roman church. And this is the question. Paul, you're telling us that we are free from sin and death. You're telling us that we have a new life in Jesus. You're telling us we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. If that's the case, how come I still feel surrounded by sin and death? How come I still feel burdened by all the hard stuff in life? How come there's still people in our church that are persecuted? How come suffering still occurs? How come we've just had three people die in our church? How come my child is sick? How come I still struggle with my sin? You tell me we've got this free life and Jesus has changed us. Why is this the case? Now, if you're a person here this morning who is considering becoming a Christian, you're going to want to explore this question because the reality is if you become a Christian and say yes to Jesus, you're, not, you're going to have all these things. You're going to have all these things change in your life and it's an amazing transformation that you're going to experience. But there's a whole lot of other things that are not going to change. What's not going to change is the troubles in life. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean that you stop suffering or that you stop getting sick or that you stop experiencing a relationship breakdown or that you stop experiencing disappointment. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean you stop being persecuted, if that's a thing that's happened to you in your life. In fact, what you might find is some of these things happen more when you become a Christian. And so now, before you make the decision to become a Christian, make sure you grapple with this question because it's going to happen. It will happen. It's guaranteed to happen. Now, so what happens sometimes is people become Christians um, in this false idea that their life is going to be perfect once they become a Christian. But what happens is, you know, and years can go by and they become a Christian and life is perfect for a while. And then one day something dramatic happens. They go to the doctor and they get a medical diagnosis of something they didn't want to have. Or uh, a relate their mum and dad get split up and get divorced. Or um, they, they lose their job and they can't find another job. Or they fail at something at uni that was really important or um, you know there's a there's something terrible that happens some tragedy that happens in their life and at that point they, they say to themselves hang on I thought I had a force field around me that God was providing to protect me from all this stuff where is God why aren't I feeling the freedom and the joy and the glory that is promised to me when I became a Christian well Every single person in this room is going to have to deal with this question at one point or another if they are a Christian. 
And so it's worth us having a look at this. And Paul has a very inspiring answer. He has a very inspiring theological answer. And you might say, theology, that's not inspiring. I don't find theology inspiring. But this theology you will find inspiring. And he also has a very uh, important practical application for what you should do. And we're going to look at both of of those things. Now, the very inspiring theological thing that Paul talks about uh, is so inspiring that these verses that we just read out, people say are some of the most important verses in the whole Bible in terms of our understanding of how the Christian life works. And this is because Paul is explaining what we call his not-yet theology. Let me explain his not-yet theology. Um, First of all, well, actually, it's his now and his not-yet theology, but he's really focusing on the not-yet in this passage. But let me explain the, the now part of the theology. The now part of the theology is what you are promised now when you become a Christian. Things like this. You are now connected to Jesus permanently and you travel through your life for eternity now with him. Uh, now you have the Holy Spirit living in you because you're connected to Jesus and your, your sins are forgiven and you're re- reunited with God. The Holy Spirit can live in you and work in you, developing Christ-like character, helping your mind understand the true things and the profound things of God. Um, The Holy Spirit is uh, empowering you to live the Christian life. Now you can call God Father and pray to him directly. Now you can expect to experience God breaking through in different ways in your life at different moments, um, in miraculous ways. Not all the time, but sometimes. Um, Now you you are a member of the Christian family and you have Christian brothers and sisters who you can serve and who will serve you. Now you have a purpose in life, which is to love God and love your neighbour as yourself. But there is also a not yet. And this is what you don't have yet. You are not yet in eternity with God. You are not yet in heaven, or as Paul calls it, the new heaven and the new earth. You do not have your resurrection body yet, which is what... Christian teaching teaches. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. That's your resurrection of the dead, if you're a Christian, not not just Jesus' resurrection. Uh, Which means that we we believe that one day after we've died, that God will raise us up into a new resurrection body which won't get sick anymore and will be really strong and good-looking. No, um, that that last bit was not true, but you will be... um, Uh, in this kind of profound resurrection body. And the closest thing we have to understanding this is to look at the resurrected Jesus in the Gospels. Read those stories if you want to find out about that. And at that point, uh, suffering has ended. There is no more uh, tension between human beings, no more tribal divisions, no more politics, no more suffering. But you're not there yet. So... What he's saying in this passage, to, the, to answer the question of how, how come we're still experiencing all this stuff, is that the mindset of the Christian life that you've got to develop is this mindset where you learn to live in hope for what you don't yet have, but what you will have one day. Paul says, while we suffer now, we should remember this glory that will one day be revealed in us. 
where our broken bodies will be completely healed, where our polluted creation will be completely restored. The rising sea levels will stop rising. The air will be crystal clear. And we will experience the full life of a child of God. But for now, believers in Jesus must walk in his footsteps and travel the path of suffering before entering into glory. Now, you might think, oh, gee, that sounds pretty heavy, the life of suffering, because I look around and I don't see a lot of suffering. But let me tell you, suffering is everywhere, even in this room. When I do communion, which we're about to do later, we're going to do communion, one of the privileges of, of, of giving people communion is that people stand in front of you and you're reminded of that person. And each person I'm reminded of various things going on in their life. And for these, you know, and a lot of that suffering, and for these Christians in Rome, suffering is in, in their life. They suffered persecution, but they suffered in ways just like you and I suffer as well. Mental and physical health problems, relationship struggles, poverty, and that sort of thing. But Paul says in this letter that suffering, earlier in the letter, we didn't read it out today, but earlier in the letter, he says, suffering should cause you to celebrate because it's an opportunity for you to grow virtue. Um, you, you grow things like uh, patience and character and hope. And um, your ability to love is transformed. But suffering sometimes is just horrible as well. There's no denying that. And you just want it to go away. And if that's you, I hear you. And Jesus hears you. Several people here have chronic illnesses, chronic pain, terminal illness, ongoing mental health problems. Life doesn't get much harder than that. Every day managing your illness, every day going to the doctor and getting different advice and then going to the pharmacy and getting new medications that may or may not work. And in, in those times, in all times, what we're learning here is about fixing our eyes on the hope of our glory for eternity, where you're going to receive a resurrection body, where you will, uh, you'll experience what um, one theologian from Melbourne, Michael Bird, calls Christification which means you become like Christ. Now, hope for that. Paul says, hold strong in your suffering. Endure it to the end in the hope that when you die and go to God in eternity, you will transform like a caterpillar into a butterfly and become like Christ. Paul says in verse 18, our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. In fact, he goes on to say, when that Christification thing occurs, when you become glorified, the power that occurs and the drama, you know, the drama of that is so powerful that it flows out and affects the whole universe. And the whole cosmos is renewed. The prophet, prophet Isaiah looked forward to this time and says, the mountains and hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Society will be healed and united. There'll be no more polarization between political tribes leading to pain. There'll be no more war or talk of war. There'll be no more violence against women. There'll be no more anxiety and depression, no more suicide, no more cancer, no more crying. The lion will lie down with the lamb, says Isaiah 
Uh, it says this, the infant will play near the cobra's den and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest, but they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And Paul says, but until that day arrives, you have to be patient. You have to hold on. You have to depend on the power of the Holy Spirit to get you through. God has made his mind up to save those who have faith in him. And it's like there's this golden chain between God and that person, between God and you, if you've given your life to Jesus, and nothing can sever that chain, and he's pulling you in. He's lifting you into your glorious future to be with the family of the Son of God. So what do we do in the meantime? Are we meant to just wait and just experience this life now of struggles and just, you know, wait until the end? It seems like a strange Christian life. Well, here we get Paul's practical advice in the passage. And he says, what he says to do is you've got to learn to pray with hope. And to do that, there's three aspects to that in the the passage. He says, first of all, you pray in weakness, then you also pray with patience, and also you pray eagerly. So let's look at pray with weakness. Praying with hope means praying with weakness. You don't need to have the perfect words to say, he says. In fact, you don't even need to have any words to say. He says in verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Waiting through this time is painful. It's like a pregnant woman groaning in the, in the pains of the last you know, hours before the, the child has arrived. I've never experienced that for myself, but I have experienced Joe experiencing it sort of, you know, vicariously. And it's painful. Verse 19 says, the whole creation is like this. The whole creation is waiting in eager expectation for all those who have put their faith in Jesus to be brought into the family of God. So when we see the climate problems in the world, we should interpret that through this theological lens. This is the creation groaning. And we groan too. We who have the Holy Spirit given to us, which is a taste of our future glory, we too grow, groan inwardly as we wait to be brought into God's family in our resurrected and restored bodies. And when we see slow progress on justice issues, we groan inwardly. We cry out to God. We don't know what to say. When we receive a bad diagnosis from the doctor about our health, we groan inwardly and we don't know what to pray. When we see Christians and non-Christians on the left and the right fighting over rugby players and rights and all that sort of stuff, we go, oh my goodness, this is the worst. And we groan inwardly and we don't know what to pray. When we feel desperately lonely and we lie on our bed and we stare at the ceiling, we groan inwardly and we don't know what to pray. When is Jesus going to make things new? And Paul says in those times you pray in weakness. He says in verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself 
intercedes for us through wordless groans. Uh, the, the New Testament describes the Holy Spirit as an advocate. So what an advocate does is speaks on your behalf. Because, you, you know, you go to court, you, your lawyer is your advocate because you don't know what to say to the judge, you know. So the lawyer does it for you. And this is what the Holy Spirit does for us. The Holy Spirit knows what to pray. So sometimes you are faced with a situation that is so difficult and terrible, you don't even know what to say. Perhaps you're praying with a friend and your friend's just told you that, you know, that their mum's just died. I, I just had that, you know, a couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine, he, he'd flown in to Melbourne from Europe because his mum had just died. You don't know what to say, you know. At this point, you can pray a prayer like this. Father God, we don't know what to pray for. We are lost for words, but we hand this situation over to you in the knowledge that the Holy Spirit is interceding on our behalf, bringing these prayers to you. Or if you can't even remember those words, you can just say, I don't know what to pray. I'll give it over to you. And the Spirit gently whispers into our struggling heart and, and brings it alive. And the Spirit speaks to the Father. As verse 27 tells us, God already knows what's in our heart. In fact, he knows us better than ourselves. And not only that, he knows the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is God. So because of all this stuff that he knows, you're, you're in good hands. And this might be, sound a bit weird and a bit abstract, but think of it this way. At the very moment you are your most weak and struggling, the Father and the Holy Spirit and Jesus, our three-in-one God, is doing something magical in your heart, something profound and supernatural. And this should give you hope. So to pray with hope means to pray in weakness. It means to pray with patience as well. We live in a culture of instant gratification where we don't know the answer to a question, so we Google it. We haven't cooked the dinner, so we get Uber Eats. You know, we haven't watched a TV show. Oh, let's just binge it instead and get the whole thing down. We feel a bit tired on Sunday morning, so we sleep in and we go out for late brunch and then we might listen to the podcast. Verse 24 says... You need patience, for in this hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. In other words, this period we live in is not just about groaning, it's also about hope. Believers in Jesus are saved with a hope for their adoption, adoption into God's family in eternity, for their redemption of their bodies to be finalised. Verse 24 says, who hopes for what they already have? No one does. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, have we, wait, we wait for it patiently. But hope assumes that you don't yet have what you are currently waiting for. It is a hope in what we do not yet have. This is the now and not yet theology. So we must wait for it patiently. It means not giving up when your prayers aren't instantly answered. The Christian who is young in their faith who's immature in their faith, I should say. A Christian who's immature in their faith says, I prayed and God didn't answer my request, so I'm going to stop praying. The mature Christian says, I continue to pray in hope, waiting patiently on God, trusting that he has his hand over my concerns. Lastly, to pray with hope means to pray with eagerness. Why? Because the baby is 
baby is worth the wait. I guess that's the kind of logic of the passage. I remember about 20 years ago, uh, um, it was almost exactly 20 years ago, uh, Star Wars Episode 1, The Phantom Menace, was coming out. Now, for people that met males, mainly, of my generation, we'd waited 17 years for this moment to come, and we were very excited. And um, about tw 20 of my friends, which included Joe and Nick Andreeski, I think we were part of this gang, we, had to, we wanted to buy, book, book 20 tickets to Gold Class Cinemas, and everything was sold out, but we got in at Sunshine. So we had to drive out to Sunshine for the midnight showing of Star Wars, of Phantom Menace. Now, you've got to remember how exciting this was. Everyone was so eager. What were people were doing? Crazies. They were going to the movies to see the preview of Star Wars, and they'd just walk out after they'd seen the preview. They'd pay the, you know, 15 bucks or whatever it was back then because they were so excited. So, you know, we were there in the Sunshine Gold Class Cinema or whatever it was, and, like, seriously, grown men were almost weeping with, with, with excitement. And here we are sitting there with our popcorn and our, you know, whatever. And the movie begins. And the cool special effects. And, dun, 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 and the fox thing and the, 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 the text and all of that and the music. And we're all <laughs> getting excited. And then, like, after about five minutes, there's, like, really cheesy dialogue. And, you know... Some of the concepts in the film are really lame. And there was this character called Jar Jar Binks, who you might know about, who's sort of this like a Muppet, you know. And we were starting to like feel completely stupid, many of us. And the film had another two hours to go. Um, anyway, what was meant to be the highlight of our life ended up being kind of a big letdown. We were so eager for this thing to happen, but then when the time came, it was just a letdown. Now, I'm using this as an example of what it's not in the Christian life. Like, if we can be that eager about a popcorn movie, how much more eager should I be about my glorification, my going into eternity? Because that will not disappoint you will not be sitting there going, I've waited my whole life for this. No. So praying with hope is praying eagerly that God would work powerfully. Praying that the kingdom of God will be unleashed in this neighborhood. Praying for your friends, praying for your church, for justice to roll down and believing that it will happen and that one day God will end all things and renew all things, including you. Praying with eagerness means praying with the anticipation that God will work. So hopefully now you've got the answer to the question of if we've got all this good stuff as Christians, why is there stuff, bad stuff, hardship happening? It's because of Paul's teaching about what you have now but what you do not have yet. And remember, when you do experience those times, that you should pray in hope, in weakness, in patience, and with eagerness. Let's pray with all of, all of those things. Lord, we pray in hope uh, for ourselves. Um, we pray that you do work powerfully in our lives. We pray for each person here who's got different things going on in their life that they're struggling with. We pray that you minister to them, that you... Pray on their behalf, Holy Spirit.
that you, you groan, you whisper into their hearts. Each one of us, give us the patience and the strength to last our whole lives and live as people of hope, trusting in what you are going to do with us and with the whole of creation. Amen.